You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. A'udhu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem, bismillahir rahmanir rahim. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to another episode of The Breakfast Show here on the Voice of Islam radio station. You're listening to myself, Samar, Usman, Manan and Sharif Bono. And we will be with you, God willing, all the way up until 9 o'clock. So if you do have any questions, any remarks, any comments that you'd like to make, please feel free to do so. The, the number for you, as always, is 0208-687-7878. And of course, you can hit us up on our socials on Twitter and on Instagram at Voice of Islam UK. Um, we do have some very interesting topics. Um, if you are familiar with The Breakfast Show here on The Voice of Islam radio station, you'll know that we usually either speak about two main segments after the news and the weather and the updates of the of the day, um, or either three new, uh, uh, main segments. And today we are going to be going through three main segments. Um, the first topic after we go through the headlines and the news for the day is is winter is coming how the UK is preparing to tackle a looming crisis um, after the 8 o'clock news we are going to be speaking about eating safe ultra processed foods linked to cognitive decline cancer and early death um, and last but not least we're going to be speaking about the topic of overpopulation are there too many of us let us know what you think in regards to these topics remember like I said this is your radio station and we'd love for you to get involved so do pick up the phone and give us a call and voice your opinion um, about either one of these three very interesting topics today um, getting straight into the uh, the news and the weather um, uh, but, but before doing so, Osman, how are you doing today? Alhamdulillah, I'm good. Um, just a little, <coughs> my throat's a little bit um, <laughs> gone because of because of the change of the weather, which we will talk about now. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I mean, it's it's it's, it's quite a sudden change, isn't it? I think we spoke about it. Well, touched on it last week as well. But it's just uh, in a matter of days, it's just gone from uh, wearing just maybe a shirt to to wearing a jumper or, or a jacket outside, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think especially after the heat wave and that, that warm weather, which like, everyone enjoyed, I'm sure. It's just uh, nobody wants it to change. I think <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. But but uh, by the grace of Allah, the Almighty, I think the, this summer that we did have was uh, was probably one of the longest summers we've had in a while, isn't it? It did, yeah, it, did, it lasted a fair bit. Even right now, the sun is uh, gleaming into the to, to the window of uh, the Voice of Islam radio station. Um, uh, here at the uh, Battle Fatul complex, which is the largest mosque uh, in Western Europe, so so it is good, but but yeah, like you said, it is getting cold now as well, isn't yeah. it? So, but but, but uh, when it comes to the weather, what's the what's the temperature? What's the highs? What are the lows? And what's it looking like for the rest of the week as well? Uh, so today, many areas will have a cloudy start, but there will be uh, sunny spells in the southern areas. Uh, though the day bright spells will develop in places, there will be outbreaks of light rain in the far northwest. And tonight, uh, there's a clear, uh, clear spells will develop across much of Wales and England through the night. Misty patches will develop in places. It will be breezier for uh, Northern Ireland and Scotland with a few showers in the far north. And uh, tomorrow, Wednesday, it will be largely bright start for many areas tomorrow, but North Ireland and Western Scotland will see areas of cloud with light rain. Sunny spells will continue through the afternoon for many.
and uh, throughout the week, Thursday um, to Saturday, a heavy band of rain will spread southeastward through Thursday and into Friday. Central and southern England will have a dry and cloudy Thursday before rain arrives on Friday. Further to the northwest, Friday will be a brighter day with sunny spells and occasional showers. Saturday will be a largely dry for all as uh, as winds shift northly uh, and high pressure ridges in. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so that is the weather for today all the way up until Saturday. So most of the week. Uh, coming up as well and of course um, our listeners will be able to guess what the uh, newspaper headlines are all about today Um, so getting into them now carried to her rest and an outpouring of love Um, all of the uh, all the front pages are dedicated to the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II of course the Times carries a full wrap showcasing a powerful image taken by photographer Jack Hill of a coffin being carried into Westminster Abbey accompanied by King Charles III. The only words on the arresting cover are carried to her rest and lyrics from composer Charles Hubert Hastings parries uh, songs of farewell. The Sun also opts for a full wrap with the front page photo dedicated to the procession carrying the Queen to her final resting place in Windsor. Under the headline, We Sent Her Victorious, the paper describes the funeral as the biggest farewell in history, while its black back cover merely says, God bless the Queen and God save the King. Mm. The Metro's wrap features two images with the front showing the King and Prince William walking behind the Queen, uh, Queen's flower-strewn horse. Uh, her, sorry. The uh, second shows the procession uh, as it enters Windsor Castle with hundreds gathered on both sides of the town's uh, long walk to watch her journey's end. The Daily Mirror's front page shows the late monarch's coffin being carried by pallbearers Adorned with flowers, the imperial state crown and the sovereign and the sovereign's orb and scepter. Mm-hmm. The Daily Express also has published a similar picture with "God rest our Queen" being the only words it features. An outpouring of love is the Daily Telegraph's headline, choosing a picture of the king placing the colours of the uh, Grenadier Guards on his mother's coffin. The paper described. A day off, a king's grief and nation's affection. Nothing the queen's children watched intently as the crown, orb and scepter were removed from her coffin, signalling the end of the of her 70-year reign. Mm. The Guardian's view of the days of the day's events is that it uh, uh, is that un, unsurpassed pomp and uh, public spectacle gave way to intimacy, quote unquote. Uh, noting that the Queen's final farewell belonged only to her family. The UK's longest reigning monarch was laid to rest in a private ceremony away from the cameras and surrounded by only her loved ones, the paper reports. The Eye describes the day as representing the end of the Elizabeth, Elizabethan age as hundreds of thousands of people lined the route from Westminster to Windsor to say thank you and goodbye. The paper reports the vast procession brought to London to a st- brought London to a standstill with spectacular military display, while the funeral led to an unprecedented gathering of world leaders. 
The Daily Mail features a picture of the Queen's coffin being lowered into the royal vault at St. George's Chapel in Windsor, headlining on her final journey, quote-unquote. The paper reports she was moved alongside her beloved husband, Philip, to rest for eternity with her father, ma- mother and sister in the King George uh, Memorial Chapel. In the Financial Times... <coughs> sorry, in the Financial Times skews a traditional headline in favour of a striking aerial page photo of the Queen's coffin being carried out of Westminster Abbey. Watched by the assembled congregation, the paper describes the state funeral as a momentous event, with world leaders joining much of the British public in mourning her death. The Queen being laid to rest next to her beloved Philip, uh, quote-unquote, is the focus of the Daily Star's front page, featuring a photo of her coffin being carried up the long mile. The paper's headline, Side by Side, Together Forever, is placed next to a picture of the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh, arm in arm. So as we can see, all of the front pages have been dedicated to the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II, capturing what the Times calls a ceremony marked by splendour and pageantry. Uh, with many pages of photographs. The same picture appears on the front of the Daily Express, The Guardian and Daily Mirror. It shows the Queen's coffin draped in the royal standard flowers as well as the monarch's crown and orb. Entering Westminster Abbey on the shoulders of eight guardsmen, the Daily Mail opts for a picture of the coffin being lowered into the royal vault at Windsor later. The Sun, the Daily Star and the Eye all show the huge crowds watching the cottage uh, on its final journey to Windsor Castle. The Sun estimates that up to a million people gathered along the 21-mile route from London to Windsor, roads that it says were lined with love. The Daily Mail says the ways uh, uh, says the way people threw flowers at the hearse carrying the Queen's coffin had echoes of Princess Diana's funeral, a theme picked up by the Daily Star, which calls the late monarch the People's Queen. The Daily Telegraph examines the outpouring of love from both her son and King Charles III and the nation. Um, uh, uh, from, from both King, uh, her son King Charles III and the nation God rest our queen uh, quote unquote urges the Daily Express on its front cover while its back writes God save our king next to a picture of the new monarch his eyes visibly red from what the Times describes as a day of history marked with tears um, uh, Sharif, just bringing you into the conversation here as well. I mean, ha- uh, were you able to watch the uh, uh, the, the final goodbye last uh, yesterday? Assalamualaikum. Good morning, guys. Right, Peace and blessing of Allah be upon you all. Um, I was <coughs> able to catch a um, glimpse of it, not mm-hmm. all of it. I was in and out, but um, I picked up on one. <coughs> excuse me. I picked up on one thing that you said that London was brought to a standstill. Mm. I don't think it was London alone. I think the whole of the United Kingdom came to a standstill yesterday. Yeah. I know for a fact that in Stroud, where I am, there was literally nothing open. Mm-hmm. You couldn't get a a single drop of petrol. Couldn't get any store that was open. There was absolutely nothing between the times um, from the moment the, the ceremony started at eleven until about two p.m. Yeah. So the whole of the UK became to a standstill, and 
I must say, the bits that I did catch on the TV was absolutely spectacular. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, definitely. And I mean, it's uh, it, it was amazing to see how the whole nation got together to to say this this final goodbye isn't it i mean when uh, at her uh, or on her passing uh, thursday uh, um um uh, last week it was uh, uh, sorry before that it was it, it seemed as if of course uh, it was a huge thing and it was a massive deal but because everything was still going as usual there was no let's say uh, bank holiday Monday on the following uh, weekend or there wasn't anything which happened um, right there and then it seemed as if maybe not so much um, attention is being given to this massive thing mm. which has just happened uh, upon our nation um, but uh, of course you had the billboards and you've got uh, uh, on newspapers social media and uh, other uh, media platforms and out, uh, outlooks as well but yesterday it was uh, it was amazing to see how how everyone got together how everyone was glued to either their televisions watching it uh, at mm. home with their families and their loved ones or 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 uh, even going out uh, and uh, watching it in London as well uh, of course people travel from from far distances to to come and see that as well. So I mean, it, it was a beautiful display of um, of of unity, isn't it? Oh, it was. It was absolutely amazing to see the whole country come together. But what was more amazing is, I don't think there is any other personality in our time that can bring so many world leaders in one place. Yeah from the President of the United States to Canada to the Commonwealth to the Emperor of Japan who it was his first trip and the first funeral they've ever attended all of these things it was only the Queen that could do that and there is literally no one else in the whole world that could have brought so many people such a diverse group of leaders of people together in one room and that goes to show the kind of person that she was yeah. and I don't think that in our lifetime, at least, we will not see another monarch that brings people together as the Queen did in her 70 years of reign. Mm. Yeah, no, no, most certainly, most certainly. Um, uh, Usman, do you have any uh, comments on uh, on the uh, on 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 the the, the burial <coughs> yesterday as well? Yeah, um, it's just like uh, like uh, Sharif uh, said. It's an amazing sight just uh, even if when you're not there when you're just watching on the TV it's just so many people you, you know you see a line like mile long or even yeah. longer line and mm. the coughing being carried out it's just crazy to see so many people and I, I just can't imagine how it would be when you are there yeah. at, at the place how busy it would be yeah no no most certainly and I mean it's so many people I think one of the newspapers uh, actually estimated um, how many it was I, I, we did just mention it as well um, but uh, I've, I've I've lost that quote now um, but it, it just goes to show how many people uh, yeah so, so the Sun estimates that up to a million people gathered uh, along the 21 mile uh, route from London to, to Windsor 
um, uh, roads that uh, it says were lined with love uh, is the the title over there. Um, and and if, I mean, seeing it online as well, seeing it on uh, on the television, you can see it, it 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 was an amazing spectacle, and it was literally so many people, um, and it, it just sort of brought the nation uh, together, isn't it? So it's uh, so like I said, a, a very wonderful sight uh, uh, indeed. Um, Sharifa, are, are there any other maybe articles or anything else that you would like to mention before we move on to the first segment? Um, well, the the one that's on the on the front page of the BBC at the moment is um, two new two two stories that picked up um, caught my eye this morning. Is mm-hmm. the one is the UK will match Ukraine support in twenty twenty three. So this is our new Prime Minister Liz Truss um, vouching to help. Um, the Ukraine in the next year to come as part of her priorities and to match the support that we gave in 2022 in order to support the Ukraine in uh, in this conflict. And the second one is the conviction quash for a serial podcast murder case. I don't know if you guys have been following this, but um, I got introduced to this um, if you, well, over a year ago now, where this real life podcast was being broadcast from Canada, I think, or America. Mm-hmm. And it's about this um, young guy, Adnan Said, who was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of his ex girlfriend in 1999. Mm-hmm. And, and over the, the two decades, he's been in jail and now he's been released pending a new trial because there is evidence that has shown the original trial was flawed. So oh. that's that's quite an interesting, and it's on the front page of the BBC at the moment, um, and the US correspondent in Baltimore. So that's that's the two that caught my eye this morning. Yeah, no, I mean, very interesting uh, uh, indeed, and it just goes to show that um, whenever uh, decisions are made or whenever uh, anything like that happens, of course, a proper, uh, thorough research and thorough investigation needs to be done uh, to avoid uh, such mishaps, isn't it? That. Uh, uh, obviously, some things may may not be apparent at the time, um, and so decisions can be made which are which are which are maybe based on false uh, things. Uh, but obviously, it's uh, it's our duty as 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 humans to do the uh, to to do whatever we can in the best of our capability and ability to to make the right decisions. I mean, even if we go to the Holy Prophet of Islam, uh, Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. There there is a narration in which he said that. Uh, uh, because of um, maybe uh, um, uh, the way that people talk, they may be able to uh, sway me in uh, uh, in one direction to make a decision, uh, but that might not be the right decision. But because of the way that they've uh, expressed their words mm. um, and because of the eloquence in their language and other such things as well, um, I I am also prone. I'm a I'm a, I'm a human. Uh, I'm also prone to making mistakes as well. So so if I do make a mistake, uh, which is which is actually false or based. Uh, off of things which I I do not fully know, then uh, then just know that this this uh, mercy that you have been given is actually a piece of uh, of hellfire, uh, which you will receive, of course, uh, after your after your demise. And so it's it's mm. uh, essential for us to to not just uh, to, to to always be just in in our actions, isn't it? It is, and this is what the, our current caliph and the head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mizar Masur Ahmad, has been preaching: is we need to um, 
we need to rule the world, especially world leaders need, need to rule with absolute justice. Yes. And this is what we see that we're lacking, where um, self-interest have come, have taken over the true meaning of what, um, the, uh, the true essence of what Islam teaches. And this goes to show that even when the, um, when people lie and they try to get away with things they've done, the truth always comes out in the end. Yeah. And this is a case where, you know, by, by reading through it, some of the eyewitnesses or the witnesses have lied or have misconstrued certain things. And 20 years later, they're having to go through it again because of those things. And, and there are new suspects being interviewed. And we're seeing that um, the truth is finally kind of, we're, we're seeing a glimpse of the truth, but we don't know what the full extent of the truth is. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, most certainly, most certainly. Um, and with that, we are going to be going to our first uh, segment for the day. Just, uh, just a quick uh, uh, reminder for our listeners, the three topics that we're going to be speaking about, uh, overpopulation, are there too many of us, is the last topic for the day, eating safe, ultra-processed foods linked to cognitive decline, cancer and early death is uh, what we're going to be discussing after the 8 o'clock news, God willing. Um, and now, currently, we are going to be going into our first segment, which is winter is coming. How the UK is preparing to tackle a looming crisis. Remember, if you would like to get involved in any one of these topics um, and share your opinion, share your thoughts uh, uh, when it comes to, like I said, any one of these, then remember, do pick up the phone and give us a call. 208 687 7878 is the number for you and of course you can tweet us and leave your comments on our Instagram page at Voice of Islam UK um, so the United Kingdom's new Prime Minister is reportedly preparing to commit as much as £150 billion which uh, in dollars would be uh, £172 billion to shield households and businesses from soaring energy bills. Increasing government borrowing at a time when investors are already on edge about the country's finances. As energy experts warn of likely rationing, a new survey recently showed that nearly a quarter of UK adults plan to keep heating off in the winter while others are travelling to avoid the cold. The coming winter will bring many difficult choices, especially for the most vulnerable members of society, such as the elderly or those living in poverty. This uh, segment, of course, aims to look at some of the problems and the solutions being suggested by the government to uh, tackle them. Um, so, of course, we're going to be speaking about uh, a few different things here. What steps uh, are the government uh, taking to address the issues? Um, what more can be done? Um, how can we cope um, and, and other such things as well, further ways to cut costs um, and, uh, of course, the Islamic perspective, uh, perspective when it comes to all of this as well. But before uh, speaking about all of these, um, uh, Usman, why is the winter going to be different from, from the ones before or, the, or, or previous winters that we've had? Uh, yeah, as you know, the you know the financial state, not just of the UK, the whole world is... Uh, kind of fluctuating and going downwards so energy bills are rising there's the issue with Ukraine and Russia and all these problems um, they, they're they going to affect this winter because you need uh, heating you need energy you need gas and all that comes from uh, outside the UK Yeah. 
Yeah, so you have to, because uh, our relations with uh, Russia and Europe and Ukraine, so there's issues uh, all over Europe, I think, all over the world generally, but uh, especially this year. And uh, another thing to notice is that you, you see two extremes here. We Like just this year, we had record-breaking temperatures and a heat wave, and, yeah. and now we're going to have this uh, very, very cold and difficult winter. Mm. So it's going to be very difficult to cope compared to previous years, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, no, definitely. Um, and uh, the, I mean, this winter, uh, uh, many, if not most, uh, households and businesses will be struggling to make ends meet, um, having to choose between starving or freezing. Some hit worse than others, uh, namely uh, pensioners as well. And this is a decision that no one should be having to make. No one should be thinking of whether or not they're going to be uh, going to sleep uh, in a state of hunger or in a state of uh, of of being cold i mean this is this mm-hmm. is not a, a decision that any um household should be making both of these things should be readily available uh food and of course proper heating as well energy prices are skyrocketing and despite some uh, support now in place or let's uh, yet to be implemented many will still be watching their wallets Sky's Daniel Dunford writes, UK prices uh, price rises slowed in August compared to July, but are still at the highest rates in more than 40 years. The UK is unique uh, in that it has to to uh, contend with uh, several inflammatory issues uh, contributing to its lost uh, its cost of living crisis, a weak pound, uh, low employment, an increasingly cashless society, post pandemic, Brexit, and most critically, like what you mentioned as well, Osman, the Ukrainian war. Um, and when it comes to the the Russia and Ukraine crisis, His Holiness, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmad, may Allah strengthen his hand, he said that for many years, I have warned the major powers of the world that they must heed the lessons from history, particularly in relation to the two catastrophic and devastating world wars that took place in the 20th century. In this regard, in the past, I have written letters to the leaders of uh, various nations, urging them to set aside their national and vested interests in order to prioritize the peace and security of the world by adopting true justice at all levels of society. So like what we were mentioning earlier as well, I mean, a true justice uh, always needs to be maintained and always needs to be kept because that is how the society can run in peace. And if if we don't have true justice and if we're only looking at our own vested interests, then of course we will never see peace in a global form. Uh, and so that's why this is so essential. Uh, Sharif, what steps uh, are, are the government taking in order to address these uh, issues that we're seeing over here? Um, that's that's an interesting qu- um, question, Samar. Um, on the 8th of September, the government announced that a typical household energy bill will be capped at 2500 annually until 2024. Mm-hmm. This scheme will cost up to £150 billion. Pounds. Uh, additionally, they are introducing some cost of living payments 
which will be partly funded by a 25% windfall tax on oil and gas firms' profits, um, expected to, to raise about $5 billion as follows. Um, all households in the UK will get £400 energy bill discount. Mm-hmm. Household on means-tested benefits will get a one-off payment of £650. Pensioners' household, extra fuel... Uh, extra winter fuel payment of £300 and a one-off disability cost of living payment of £150. So the aforementioned plans are due to be implemented from the 1st of October. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's uh, it's it's amazing to see that, of course, something is happening and, and there are plans to be implemented uh, and to help out the households uh, here in the UK. But Sharif, what do you think? Is is this enough? The the four hundred pound energy bill discount, the six fifty uh, one off payment for 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 the households on 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 benefits, three hundred for the winter fuel payments, and a one one fifty one off uh, disability cost of living payment. Um, do you think all this uh, is enough, or or, or uh, with these in place, from like you mentioned, being implemented mm-hmm. from the first of October, do you think families will still have to address the question of whether or not they're going to go to sleep hungry or cold, or or, or will these um, actions um, actually remedy that? I think it it goes a small way to helping people. But however, I don't think it solves the problem. Mm-hmm. So if you look at what people were paying a year ago, it's almost over double or sometimes tripled what they were paying. So the 2,500 cap that we're seeing this year is also, is almost triple what um, I was paying um, a year ago. Mm-hmm. So I think there are a lot of people out there who will look at those 400 pound um, if you're not means tested, you're not going to get the 650. Yeah. If you're not a pensioner, you're not going to get the 300. So in reality, the majority of the household in the UK will prob- probably get the 400 pound. Mm-hmm. 400 pound out of 2,500 on a yearly bill is not really a lot. It's yeah. it's 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 insignificant. It's it's not insignificant, but it's still not enough yeah. for people to actually sit there and go. Okay, am I comfortable enough to put the heating on or do I choose between food um, and heating? But on the other hand, you've got that 650 for those people in dire need who are in means-tested benefits who will get, so it's about a £1,000 they'll probably get. So mm-hmm. that's 50% of their bill. So maybe that will help a little bit, but it's very subjective in terms of who's getting it and what kind of help they get. And what what I think is 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 showing is that the government is actually trying to do something yeah. but whether it actually goes to help the majority of people where I'm not sure yet and only time will tell yeah 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 very right uh, like like the rest of Europe the United Kingdom is grappling with how to pay for its uh, ambitious relief package and the, the details of uh, trust plans uh, are still unclear, but she has already made one thing clear. The UK government is not imposing a new windfall tax on the bumper profit, its energy uh, companies. So on Wednesday, she ruled out extending the $5 billion tax former finance minister Rishi Sunak introduced in May on UK oil and gas producers to fund an early energy relief package. And she says, I am against a windfall tax. I believe it is the wrong thing to be putting companies off 
investing in the United Kingdom just when we need to be growing the economy. So uh, again, this is not just the issue of the winter. It's also, uh, like I said, the the mistakes from the past yeah. uh, with, with the economy and the relations with other countries. So all these, uh, the government is tackling multiple issues and I think uh, they're, they're trying their best. Obviously, they 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 I, I, every time they, they spend like a, such a big, uh, so much money and a big budget on helping us, I'm still surprised where that money is coming from. Mm. So I think the government is doing a good job. Obviously, um, as Sharif Sub said, we'll see if it's gonna do a difference or not. Yeah. But um, yeah, so we're in this together. We we should be supporting the government as well. Of course. Not just always complaining. You know, uh, yeah. it's, it's it's like it's a team effort. Yeah. So uh, we're we're part of this country. So we should do our our part we should contribute maybe you know it's going to be tough save save some uh, save some money and just have like a i think a tough year this time yeah i, I mean even uh, just this last uh, weekend um, there were the auxiliary um, uh, um, uh, programs isn't there auxiliary uh, get togethers um, they were for the for the for the ladies um, as well as the the elderly as well um, and in that, uh, on over the weekend, His Holiness, uh, he actually graced uh, both of those programs, the ladies one and the, uh, uh, the, the elderly men's one as well. Um, and uh, in, in, in one of them, he, he, he was actually speaking about giving to charity as well. And what he mentioned was that despite times being tougher right now, and people might give the excuse of saying that, oh, because... Um, because of the uh, not being paid enough, or because of the the difficulty in uh, in paying for their bills and other such things, because of all of these problems that we've seen and that we've mentioned as well um, uh, earlier as well, like the the weak pound, low employment, uh, cashless society, post pandemic Brexit, uh, and of course the Ukrainian war, other such things as well. Um, because of these things, uh, people might give the excuse of, oh, maybe we can't give to to charity um, as much as we used to or maybe we cannot give uh, um, uh, other such things uh, as well and help out people within the society isn't it but His Holiness may Allah strengthen his hand Hazim Ahmed what he said was that we should still be giving uh, as much as we can and whenever we do give of course Allah the Almighty will reward us for it so if we think to ourselves that oh um, I can't uh, give the the, uh, um, the 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 charity or other such things, um, uh, or maybe we try to to cheat as well, or maybe um, uh, try to do tax fraud or other th- such things and save our money uh, uh, rather than um, giving it where it should be. Then, of course, his Holiness said that this is a an uh, a, such a worrying thing and such a wrong thing. Um, that people are doing within the society today and and have been doing for for many years it's not something new but this is something that we definitely need to refrain from we always need to be just uh, with our actions we need to always be honest as well um, and of course Allah the Almighty he says within the Holy Quran as well that if you place your trust uh, upon God Almighty then how can it be that he that, that you you are stressed or how can it be that you are uh, um, caused uh, some sort of affliction is being uh, inflicted upon you and so we should put our reliance upon Allah the Almighty um, and with that we should uh, we should trust him 
and, and be honest and just uh, and always try to give as much as we can. Uh, we mentioned this, I think, in our last week's show as well, that the upper hand is better than the lower yeah. hand, isn't it? The, the narration of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, um, that we should always be in a state of giving rather than receiving. Um, and I, I also remembered in yes. the history of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, there was a time during the time of the second caliph, Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmoud Ahmad, may Allah have mercy on him. Um, uh, there was there was a difficult time on this community, and he requested the whole community to to save up and to limit themselves to. So if he said that if you eat. Let's say if you eat two uh, pieces of bread, mm. shorten it and make it one. Yeah. If you have uh, uh, like one liter of water every day and make it half and have half a liter. So mm. for over a long period of time, uh, this community, they, they suffered a lot and they had to do many sacrifices. Yeah. But today, as you can see, all that sacrifice has paid off and we have... Uh, we have wealth abundantly. We we have uh, no financial struggles like that. So um, I think this is the same situation here in the, uh, with us in the UK. We we need to go through this sacrifice once to understand and uh, to value. You know th- what we had before. Yeah. The ease, the comfort, the the um, support of the government. So I think now it's our time to support the gov- government. And over the years. Uh, it will give back to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that, we are going to be going to our first uh, guest for the show. We do have with us on the line Professor Sam uh, Frankhauser, uh, Professor of Climate Change Economics and Policy at the University of Oxford, uh, where he is affiliated with the Smith School of Enterprise and the Environment and the School of Geography and the Environment. Uh, he is also Research Director of Oxford Net Zero and a Fellow uh, of Rubin College. Uh, Professor Frank Hauser was an uh, inaugural member of the UK Climate Change Committee. He is a co-investor, uh, investigator, sorry, of the Place-Based uh, uh, Climate Action Network, which is the PCAN and ESRC-funded uh, Network Plus, uh, hosted by the Grantham Research Institute. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning, and. And welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. Good morning and thank you for being with us. Um, we're speaking about a very interesting uh, topic here on, on uh, the winter, how it's coming and how the UK is preparing to tackle a looming crisis. And for the benefit of our listeners, the first question that we wanted to ask you was, can you please uh, explain the reasons why energy prices uh, increase so dramatically? Yeah, energy prices have been quite high for some time. Uh, Initially, they they increased because uh, as we came out of the COVID crisis, demand sort of bounced back much more quickly than people had thought and and prices started to rise. But since February, the the key reason and the main reason why energy prices have gone up is, of course, the the war in Ukraine, which which has limited the amount of gas supply that's coming into Europe from Russia and gas is a is a is a key part of our energy system the uk doesn't use a lot of russian gas but we are part of the same european market where russian gas is prominent so we face the same prices and that has pushed up uh, our prices here in the uk thank you dr frank and um do you think the new government and the plan they're imposing uh, will it be able to overcome these uh, this risk of a looming crisis yeah, the government has, has actually sort of uh, launched quite a big 
package of energy support worth well over 100 billion pounds. Mm. We haven't talked a lot about it because it was announced just before before the death of uh, of Her Majesty mm-hmm. the Queen. But this is this is a big package. It's only a big package for a government that doesn't sort of philosophically believe in that type of intervention. Um, but you can wonder whether whether it's enough. There are probably some gaps that, that still need to be filled. Uh, I, I give you two. One is we haven't heard yet what the government will do to support businesses. We hear what uh, what the support for households will be, mm-hmm. uh, but small businesses, shops, uh, hairdressers, uh, restaurants and so on, we don't know how they will be supported. And in terms of households, the second question that's still open, the, the package that's been announced is 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 uh, capping energy energy costs for for households, but it's capping them at the level that's still about twice as high as the, the level we we've sort of been used to in the past. So there's still a fair amount of worry and anxiety about price levels in in poorer households. Hmm. Uh, I mean, even if we go to a, a derby shop, uh, coffee shop, uh, bear owner Craig Bunting, he suggested to, to the BBC as well that a cut in uh, VAT would prevent independent businesses from going under. So, I mean, we, we like you said, we have seen what they've mentioned and what they're spe- talking about when it comes to households. Uh, but uh, again, like you said, we are yet to find out about what's happening for businesses. Um how far, uh, Professor Frankhauser, in your opinion, is it possible for the government to manage the extra expenses of the new energy bill cap? Wasn't the pandemic enough of a burden for, for the government budget as it is? It, it, it is an expensive program. As I said, it will be over £100 billion pounds expected yeah. over the next two years or so. But, you know, that's, that's in a sense, uh, the role of government is to be able to, to sort of intervene in crises like this and be able to absorb uh, costs like this, and the government can do it. There, there are sort of questions of how you finance that hundred billion, and uh, the the government has chosen to uh, finance it through debt. Uh, so it, it will raise government bonds that that will sort of basically put the burden of repaying it to future taxpayers. The government's argument is that it wants to grow the economy, and then a growing, bigger economy will be able to absorb. This, uh, this this debt burden. Whether that's feasible or not, we shall see. Um, there would have been other ways of, of, of financing uh, financing this this burden. For example, sort of looking at the at the windfall profits, the high profits of some, not all, energy supplier, or or another option would have been to uh, to recoup the money from future energy consumption. But the government has chosen to do it through tax. Uh, uh, sorry, through debt level. And uh, we, we will just see how how big the economy will be when we have to pay it back. And uh, do you think the consumers will behave? Will they be cautious of energy bills or will they be less worried because of this huge energy package we're getting? Yeah, um, there's obviously one sort of function of, of high prices in a market is that they signal that something is scarce and we should use it carefully. Uh, and so by, by capping the, the, the price, uh, some of that signal gets dented. Uh, and we, we do have to worry about not just the high prices, but also the, the security of supply, the availability of gas. So there's a bit of a worry there about that, but I, I would put it in proportion. Um, the price levels that we will see 
uh, are still quite high compared to what uh, consumers are used to. So consumers will, will still sort of have a lot of incentive uh, and, and a lot of awareness of price level and, and will will use energy responsibly. Hmm. And uh, what about the long run? What, what will uh, likely be the impacts of the current energy crisis uh, on the world economy uh, going forward in the long run? Yeah, we, we've had energy shocks before, so we can go back in history and, and, and sort of observe what, what happened in the past, in the 1970s and so on. And they do put the damper, and uh, high energy prices put the damper on economic performance. Uh, uh, in the past, they've been associated with, uh, with a recession, so with a sort of short-term uh, economic uh, uh, fall, fall in economic activity. In the longer term, what tends to happen is that uh, people innovate uh, energy efficiency measures, uh, alternative forms of, 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 uh, of energy become, become more attractive, and we hope uh, we can expect the same thing to, to happen in, in, in this crisis. So in the long term, uh, we, we can hope it will accelerate the switch from fossil fuel to renewable energy. Hopefully it will accelerate something we desperately need, which is, which is a boost in energy efficiency and energy conservation. So in the long term, hopefully we will, we will be able to um, switch away from fossil fuel and make future shocks less possible. Yeah, Professor, and uh, will external events like the recent floods in Pakistan, uh, record summer temperatures and high prices mean uh, affect Britain's commitment to net zero emissions? Yeah, it's uh, uh, the, the commitment to net zero emissions is actually very, very important. But somebody once called the objectives in the energy sector a trilemma. Uh, there's sort of three things that have to be achieved. Energy has to be affordable, that's the first thing. Energy uh, has to be secured, that's the second thing. And energy has to be clean, that's the third thing. We have to find the balance between those three things. And the, the, sort of the focus now is on security and price, but we shouldn't uh, overlook uh, the need for clean energy as well. As you, as you say, we've had a, a really stark reminder of the risks of climate change this year with the floods in Pakistan with the 40 degrees temperatures in, in, in the UK. Um, so we have to keep a focus on the cleanliness of the, the cleanness mm. of the energy as well. <clears throat> Those two things go together, luckily, uh, in the sense that clean uh, electricity, clean energy from renewable sources also happens to be um, more secure. There's less reliance mm -hmm. geopolitically on foreign supplies of, 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 of energy. Uh, we, we produce it ourselves at home. And it's, at the moment, it's also cheaper. At the moment, uh, renewable electricity from offshore wind is cheaper than electricity from gas. So in the long run, those objectives will come together. Yes. Um, and just lastly there, uh, according to Ofgem, uh, energy bills are likely to increase by 80% uh, this winter, meaning that the average household will pay, have to pay €4,182 each year to heat and power their homes. The, the, the fear is that if this uh, situation is not dealt with properly, millions will plunge into poverty apart from uh, the bill cap. Uh, is there, uh, apart from the bill cap, is there any other practical solution that would be helpful for, 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 for people? Yeah, the bill cap will, will, will actually go a long way to, to sort of prevent those numbers that you just quoted. The, the sort of bill cap is projected to, to reduce the average bill to about two and a half thousand 
mm. pounds rather than well over 4,000 pounds. Uh, as I said, that's still about twice as much as most households will be used to from 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 earlier days. So there's still you know, a lot of anxiety about the affordability of energy. Um, so there's more than we probably should look at that can be done. And the main thing for me to look at isn't looking at new forms of fossil fuel supply, but to tackle the problem from the demand side, mm-hmm. to invest in energy efficiency and energy conservation. We had a reasonably good program in the UK up to 2015 of loft insulation, cavity wall insulation, uh, drafty windows and so on. That was that was uh, uh, abandoned after the 2015 election and people have calculated if we have kept on with that program and have kept on doing those measures, uh, our collective energy bills would now be two and a half billion pounds lower. Oh, so wow. we have to go back to that sort of program, go back to those loft insulation, cavity wall insulation, mm. uh, uh, energy conservation programs, because the less energy we use for the same amount of comfort, as it were, the lower our bills will be. Yeah. Yeah, most certainly, most certainly. Um, thank you for for that, Professor uh, Frank Hauser, for, for for being with us, for answering our questions and sharing your insight uh, into this uh, very interesting topic indeed. Uh, thank you once again, and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead. Thank you, my pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. That was Professor Sam Frankhauser, uh, who's a professor of climate change economics and policy at the University of Oxford, where he is affiliated with the Smith School of Enterprise and the Environment and the School of Geography and the Environment. He is also research director of uh, Oxford Net Zero and a fellow of Reuben College. Um, Sharif, some some very interesting uh, things that we picked up from that uh, discussion, isn't it? Um, it is, it is. And and one thing that I wanted to go back to is what and we were talking about before Professor came onto the show is we need to do our part also. And uh, in the few minutes that's left uh, before the news break, I just wanted to kind of touch on that to make sure that our listeners are also aware that it's not just the gas company and the government that need to kind of step up and do their part. We can also contribute to what we use so for example things like do waiting and being patient and doing a full load of laundry rather than doing half loads those kind of measures looking at eco settings or ditching the dryer washing at 30 degrees wash instead of 40 degrees all of these little steps can help us reduce our bill turning off the lights you know opting for a microwave instead of the oven um, closing the curtains at night to re- retain heat instead of having our TV on standby mode, turning it off, you know, unplugging our chargers when it's fully charged. I'm guilty of that. I mm. just leave my phone on charge all night. So having those, being aware of those measures that we can take ourselves. <clears throat> and the, I would like to end with this beautiful um, quote from His Holiness in a meeting that he had with the auxiliary um, ladies organization in Italy where he advises that we should develop contentment and how contentment is connected to one's faith and he said that it's a constant effort that we will have to exert according to our circumstances they create we need to create a plan of actions and those actions will um, help us to develop contentment and connect our faith and as a result, our worldly desires will reduce. 
and we can see from these words of wisdom from his holiness that if we developed our plan and see what we can do in order to help ourselves and and with the help that we are getting with our government we should be able to manage these hard times ahead yeah most certainly most certainly and and with that i mean uh, if, of course it is troubling times um and because of that the, our neighbors and our friends and people around us might also be going through this as well so it's our duty to actually step up um and really help out as much as we possibly can um that's it for the first topic we're going to be taking a short break here is the eight o'clock news Allah, Allah. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to the breakfast show here on the Voice of Islam radio station. Just a quick time check for you. It is now four minutes past eight uh, on Tuesday, the 20th of September 2022. And if you are just joining us, then before the news, we were speaking about how winter is coming. Um, and how the UK is preparing to tackle a looming crisis. Remember, if you do miss uh, any of our shows uh, and you want to revisit them, then of course you can do so on our website at voiceofislam.co.uk. Um, um, just as a reminder and uh, uh, for, for those of uh, you who are just joining in, um, we have two topics left for the hour. We're going to be speaking about eating safe, how ultra processed foods linked to cognitive, uh, cogn- uh, co- uh, uh, cognitive decline, cancer and early death. Um, this is what we're going to be discussing right now. And towards the end of the show, um, we're going to be speaking about overpopulation are there too many of us is the question for that segment let us know what you think 0208-687-7878 is the number for you and of course like I said you can tweet us and leave your comments on our Instagram page at Voice of Islam UK um so eating ultra processed foods uh, significantly increases men's risk of uh, a colorectal cancer and can lead to heart disease and early death in both men and women. According to two new large-scale studies of people published in the British Medicine Journal, a separate study conducted in Brazil this year linked such foods to clear cognitive decline, while other research articles have found that they can raise our risk of obesity, heart and circulation problems, diabetes and cancer. This segment will look at what these ultra-processed foods are and how to cut them out of our diet. So just just to begin with, Osman, what are ultra-processed foods? So ultra-processed foods are (coughs) food and drink products that have undergone specified types of food processing usually by transitional and other very large big food corporations with more uh, fats and oil. And ultra-processed f- ultra foods contain sugars, oils and fats that can increase col- uh, colorectal cancer risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we mentioned earlier that there has been a fair bit of research done on this as well. Sharif, what, what were the findings for this? So... The research findings, um, researchers from Tufts University and Harvard University 
in Massachusetts reported that men who consume higher rates of ultra-processed foods were at a 29% higher risk for developing colorectal cancer than men who consume much smaller amounts. The US-based study examined the diets of over 200,000 men and women for up to 28 years and found a link between ultra-processed food and colorectal cancer. The third most diagnosed cancer in the US in men but not women. These overly processed foods are often high in added sugars and salt, low in dietary fiber and full of chemicals additives such as artificial colors, flavors and stabilizers. The study did find that eating a higher consumption consumption of ultra-processed dairy foods such as yogurt was associated with a lower colorectal cancer in women. Analysis published by the British BMJ, the British Medical Journal, compared the role of nutrient-poor foods, such as food high in sugar and saturated or trans fats, versus ultra-processed foods in the development of chronic disease in early and early death. The researchers found that both types of foods independently increase the risk of early death, especially from cardiovascular diseases. Eating a lot of ultra-processed foods significantly increases men's risk of colorectal cancer and can lead to heart disease and early death in both men and women. In addition, experts say these foods are low in nutrients and can help prevent normal colorectal function. Ultra-processed foods are usually high in added sugar, oil, fats, and refined starch, refined starch, altering gut microbiota composition unfavorably and contributing to increased risk of weight gain and obesity. Weight gain and uh, weight weight gain and obesity are established high risk factors for colorectal cancer. Ultra-processed foods are low in nutrients and bioactive compounds that are beneficial for, to, for the prevention of colorectal cancer, such as fiber, calcium, and vitamin D. Ultra-processed foods consist of most processed meat, which is established risk factors for colorectal cancer. The World Health Organization has classified processed meat, including ham, bacon, salami, and frankfurts, as in a group one carcinogens known has known, known to cause cancer, which means that there's there's a strong evidence that processed meats cause cancer. Eating processed meats increases the risk of bowel and stomach cancer. Mm. Um, and uh, I mean some some very interesting things there, and, and it is maybe from this we can see that because like, like you mentioned earlier, um, this is the third uh, um, highest um, um, type of cancer when it comes to the men in the U.S., uh, but not for the women. So maybe. Uh, another thing which uh, we could speak about on another day, uh, of course, but uh, maybe it's something which is linked to this is that men uh, eat more of these uh, ultra processed foods than, than women. Mm. And maybe that's why uh, from the studies which have been conducted, uh, we can see that it's more it's it's uh, atta- um, being uh, uh, affecting more men than it is uh, women. 
Um, and with that, uh, we're going to be listening to a question and answer session. Uh, this was um, with the fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmad. May Allah have mercy on his soul. And this is in regards to uh, a, a, a def- or an explanation that he gave of whether or not fast food is halal. Assalamu alaikum, Huzur. Huzur, my question is also connected with food. Um, good. You you gave. Uh, uh, and are you reminding me of, of the time to eat? <laughs> it's getting. <laughs> the smell so is overwhelming. Yes, you're right. <laughs> right. It's time we should have finished this. Right. Yes, please. Huzur, you uh, gave some information on fast foods. In on? One of, on fast foods. <laughs> yes, right, right. Um, I recently came across uh, a question here that although the meat, which is beef, uh, if um, you know you say the kalama on it, uh, is acceptable, the question of the buns in which uh, it is served as a hamburger, for instance, yes. is the problem. Now, um, do we it, add lard to this bun? On some of them, it is said. On some of them, it's doubtful. Now, but nowadays. Uh, the law requires that they should mention the ingredients of, of food, whatever it is. And uh, particularly in America, they meticulously observe this law. So it's easy for you to read on any biscuit packet or bun packet or anything what the ingredients are, so it's not no problem. I meant in the fast foods, such as, you know, McDonald's and Wimpy's and so Even on. Even there you can find out. So, it's yes. really, if it is lard, that's it. You see, the question of lard should be discovered, I mean, uh, should be uh, uh, tackled much before you decide to go to McDonald's. <laughs> you see? Right, right. It's not possible to go and find out from there because they don't know. This is a question decided, you know, at much higher level, at the factory level and so on. So, in such cases, the Jamaat administration should help Ahmadis to collect the, 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 the data on, on how these foods are cooked and prepared. Like uh, when I was here as a student in 1956, Maulana Maudud Ahmed Sahib was the Imam of London Mosque in those days. We investigated the system of slaughter. We wanted to find out how various animals were slaughtered uh, because according to Islam, some uh, animals was if they were slaughtered in the wrong way, could not be permissible to you even if you had recited Bismillah, the name of God, before eating. For instance, uh, uh, this uh, chicken at that time was strangled to death and they were not slaughtered. Now, as, as far as my information goes, they are slaughtered, but after first, uh, uh, you know, a slight head to the blow or something, so that they become unconscious, but still they're alive, their hearts are beating. The, the lead is black, uh, the, the blood is left when they're uh, uh, slaughtered. So that is a different situation from the one which prevailed in those days. So we made the investigation for the whole community and told everybody, this is the, the position, don't go near fowls and birds, etc., because they are slaughtered in a manner which Islam prohibits. And uh, as far as the beef went, we declared, I mean, not myself, I had no authority, but the Jamaat as such declared that you can eat that meat because in every case that was slaughtered. And according to the dictates of Muhammad 
such meat which were with such food meat which uh, 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 let's say such animals which have been slaughtered even if bismillah has not been recited before the act of slaughtering if you eat that meat before uh, say bismillah before eating that meat it becomes permissible so in in cases like these you have mentioned it is the responsibility of the system the jamaat to make investigations and to make everybody know where they stand regarding this thing well may i just say that i have investigated mcdonalds and you they, have? i have and so they, not transfer your information to the jamaat that's it the bunch authorities so they can also check and find out whether you, uh, the, the your investigations are valid or not or maybe you have committed a mistake it should not be done on an individual basis but please write to the imam or the amir sahib and tell him this is my investigation and find out more about it from your own sources and then tell the jamaat as to what we should do regarding this food okay thank you right. thank you any other question uh because this is a question of food and i know we are running out of time we have to say prayers first and after that we have to eat together so shall we call it a day okay That was uh, taken from a question and answer session uh, with His Holiness the fourth uh, head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed may Allah have mercy on his soul um and that is from a a program which was done on the uh, Muslim television uh, Ahmadiyya uh, channel MTA uh, and this was from Faith Matters which is an informative and contemporary uh, English question and answer program um exploring various matters relating to faith and religion and this is in regards to um antidepressants uh, and kosher meat as well so we'll be listening to that now the next question we have is from um, Arslan Mahmood sahib from Germany and um as a sahib he speaks about the um the issue of the you know the the, the great challenge society is facing these days is of the of global poverty and he speaks about the ways of eliminating it so from an islamic perspective what are the ways of eliminating uh this issue of poverty this is uh, such an important issue because again recent movements and and uh, protests around the world are based on this in the us we had this uh, whole movement uh, uh to take back you know the right that 90% or 99% or whatever you know figure you want to quote uh, has over the rest who control all of the resources in a society as, as resourceful as it may be in the USA still there are so many who feel that they are not having access to to these resources and then what is it that the 10% of the whole world controls over 90% of the resources and it's just unbelievable and the imbalance that's there so how would islam approach it the rich feel as if once you begin taxing them this is unjust because they earned it they deserve to you know enjoy the you know the benefits of their labors what the rich don't realize is their labors were on the blood sweat and tears of those poor people who worked for them who toiled for them who labored for them in their factories and their farms and you know and and all of their you know facilities so 
this is where everyone is supposed to get their due share. And uh, Islam speaks of this issue of, you know, equal distribution. We talked about this in the past as well. Uh, it doesn't mean that it is a social system that there's no incentive for you to go and, and earn and to gain benefit from your talents and your skills. That's allowed. But the system has a measure to ensure wealth continues to flow in society. So the image we always get, I, I love the, the, the image of the fourth Khalifa used to talk about, it's like a boat, you know, the boat goes along and it has all these resources in it, but then there has to be something that the, the things inside the boat keep coming out and keep being distributed. So you have these little measures to put holes in the boat. I don't want to sink the boat, but you want some things to come out of it. Hmm? And even that helps because if the boat it gets overburdened with too much, it will sink as well. So both ways, it's helping the people in the boat. And uh, in, in this sense, we have the system of zakat. This is the first and foremost principle. It is next to prayer mentioned throughout the Quran that uh, you are to amul salihat. You, you are to iqam uh, salat wa ita zakat. Iqam salat, observe prayer, ita zakat, and to give zakat. Why are these two things so linked? One is a relation direct to God. You're praying to God. The other is related to God's creation, zakat. And it's a vast subject. People think it's just about money. It means everything we have been given by God, whatever the gift we've been given, resource. It could be wealth. It could be land. It could be you know, you know, anything of talent. It could be our energies. We have to constantly share that. And in this sharing of these these resources on all this multifaceted level. Society benefits, and slowly you begin to remove the poor. The poor in the early Muslim era was, was you know, very extreme. They were some of the poorest and most backward nations you can think of, the Arabs. And yet it reached a point after a few centuries in Muslim Spain where there was so much wealth, they said, they didn't know what to do with it. There was no poor to give it to. So they began decorating these mosques. If you see the mosques in Spain, they're so beautiful. Why did they do it? They had all this wealth they were collecting through the system of Islam. They had no one to distribute it to because they had eliminated basically poverty. So they began beautifying God's house. Okay, no worry about man. Let's just please God now. You don't make it beautiful. Beautiful, large, palatial type of uh, places to worship. And uh, that's possible if you adopt this system. Um, I mean, this is the basic principle. Beyond that, I think the overriding, or, or let's say the underlying uh, motive is you do it for the sake of God Almighty. And, you know, I think we mentioned this over and over again. A society that removes God from the equation eventually becomes very vicious in its nature. And the, you know, the humanist concept that we, are, we can do this without God and we'll have just, no, that has failed over and over again. You know, recent communist Russia and these places, they are classic examples. Slowly but surely, the nature of man, says his greed, and this nature of man to be self-centered and selfish, it overpowers his desire to help the other. And so it's a higher level that one has to rise to, to really be... Uh, uh, conscious of fellow suffering and fellow humanity and to provide for them. So this comes to a society where it's based on, uh, first and foremost, the true faith in God and true belief in God. And society attempts to adopt the attributes of God. 
And one of the ones that we've mentioned already on, on this program is grace. It's surprising that in the Quran, when God says to adopt my attribute, He says, Ibadur Rahman, you become servants of the gracious God. Why this attribute is mentioned is so important. It comes to poverty and all these issues. God's grace, His Rahman, is that attribute that doesn't discriminate whether one believes or doesn't believe in Him. Whether one is of one category, high, low, whatever, doesn't matter. It doesn't even discriminate based on whether you are human or, or non-human. Grace is for everyone and everything. Like we say, rain falls on the, the sinner as well as it falls on the saint. That's grace. And so God is saying to us, adopt this attribute first and foremost, and then the rest will flow from that. You will begin to create a society based on graciousness and based on liberal provision for all people that will move these things. But if you don't, then you fall to the other part. And there's a very slight difference. The, the Rahman, you add a little dot to it, it becomes Rajam. And the word Rajam in Arabic means rejected, the accursed one. So a very slight difference in society by a slight measure, one dot. And you can say an Arabic word, from Rahman to Rajam. You go from a gracious society to a very accursed one, a very difficult one to live in. And that's what we see in most cases now that uh, these societies that gone away from God's teachings, because they're, they're in the Bible, they're in the Torah, they're in all scriptures to take care of the needy, provide for them out of a sign of your love of God. <clears throat> Once that's moved away from, it becomes material, it becomes capital nature, it becomes all about the self-centered nature, society suffers. So to me, this is the first step in terms of how to change a society that's, you know, struggling with poverty, bring back the quality of graciousness, and then two, bring in the elements of equality, equal just distribution of resources across the board, so all can benefit, even allow some to be rich and poor, doesn't matter, but um, the last thing I would say is the verse in Quran, I think, I believe it's in Surah Bani Israel, that it talks about that the, the Jews were told to turn your houses toward each other, you know, and this idea was that to make your society rid of these complexes and this jealousy that creates and this, this mm -hmm. hatred that comes and the crime that will follow, have a basic standard that everyone should be able to enjoy. Because if you don't have that basic standard that everyone can enjoy, there will be disparity and it will lead to conflict, it will lead to the dynamics that leads to crime and hate and you know, the, the desire that I want to be like the haves and don't want to be like the have-nots, so all those issues will come in. This is the beautiful principle of Quran. You turn your houses, they should look similar to one another. And in those cases, in those societies, you see they are a much more peaceful and balanced society. I think Azra Nisa, when he's talking of this, such an important issue, global uh, issue, uh, and uh, he has laid forward many aspects to how one can counter that and obviously uh, one thing that the uh, each individual each person has and which we are blessed that we do in a very small way in the community Ahmadiyya community worldwide is that we have this organization called Humanity First and this is one of the aspects this is one of the aims and goals and aspirations of our uh, Jamaat in our community that we would like to eradicate poverty on a scale that we can do and it has it runs projects of uh, in 50, 50 countries over six continents despite the small number that we are in in the world 
we actually aim to aspire to the teachings of the true teachings of uh, Islam in trying to bring an end to poverty and difficulty and, and the uh, aspects of water for life, sight for life, ending poverty and giving people skills is something that the Humanity First Charity does do. And only yesterday we were at a peace conference when the Minister for the International Development actually said that I am very pleased with the work that Humanity First does. We know that this is a, a drop in the ocean, but it's that drop in the ocean which is actually going to make uh, this uh, project and our aims and fulfill the aims that we have. And the Khalifatul Masih, Ayyudhul Taala bin Nasr Aziz, has this focus on, on, on this uh, project. And that is what Islam has taught us and that is what we try to do in the community and to eradicate that. Jazakallah gentlemen for a very uh, detailed uh, answer. In fact, interestingly, we have quite a few questions uh, relating to the issue of uh, poverty in today's, um, today's program. But um, I think in our initial discussion, some of those uh, have been uh, touched upon and answered. Uh, for instance, Naveed Iqbal Sahib spoke about the idea of the 90% uh, of people's wealth uh, has been taken up by 10%. And I think, uh, Zanif Sahib, you, you answered that. So uh, I hope Naveed Iqbal Sahib that answers your question as well. But if in any case it doesn't, then please feel free to contact us on faithmatters at mta.tv and for all our other viewers as well. Yes, and one thing yes of course. I didn't mention, because we were talking global now, mm -hmm. and I was speaking on just in terms of the whole idea of society and individuals. But globally, uh, I've visited some countries where you can imagine they don't have water, and this was an island. I was on an island, I won't, don't mention it, but I was shocked that they don't have drinking water and all around them is water. Huh? And then, I was, then what struck me is there are parts of the world with this excess water. Now flooding is going all over the place, you know, they don't know what to do with their water. And in one part of the world, there is no water. Uh, same, some parts of the world is famine, in other parts of the world there's all this food. So on global level, the way this would work according to Islamic system is, again, sharing. The sharing based on compassion, this idea of grace. That's missing right now. They will prefer to burn the, the stocks of grain than to share with the, the other poor nations so that the market price doesn't drop. They won't use the ships to carry water from one place to another. They'll use them to send the, the you know, weapons of destruction to destroy nations. This is where we are right now as the world. You know, so all the technology is there, the ability is there. If we would learn to share across nations, no nation would have these, these problems. If there's famine, don't worry. If there's drought, don't worry. We can still take care. And that was uh, an audio clip uh, from uh, Faith Matters, an informative and contemporary English uh, question and answer program uh, on MTA, which explores various matters relating to faith and religion. Um, and uh, um, just following on from that, we can we'll quickly go through how we can adopt a healthy diet. Um, and a few of the things that we can do are, of course, start uh, slowly. If you eat a significant amount of highly processed foods, try taking small steps towards a less processed diet. Um, there's no need to go a cold turkey today. And often, if you slowly ease into a less processed eating plan, your likelihood of uh, uh, continuing your wholesome new habits actually increase. Supplement uh, your meals with fresh foods. 
Um, so try adding a banana or an apple at breakfast or even as a snack or, or a vegetable at lunch. Ultimately, half of your plate at lunch and dinner should be fruits and vegetables. Simply adding a freshly prepared salad to an otherwise not so fresh meal makes it better for your body and more enjoyable, Nugent says. Um, the third step is fewer sugar-sweetened beverages and more water. So if you get tired of water, try carbonated water or adding fruit to water for flavour. Uh, number four is stop adding salt to foods. If you add, uh, if you need an extra flavour boost, add maybe pepper or garlic instead. Um, choose whole grains over processed grains. So go with uh, brown rice in, plain, uh, in place of white rice, whole wheat pasta instead of white pasta, and whole grain uh, bread instead of white bread. These swaps are nuttier tasting and more filling as well. Uh, number six on this list is limit or avoid processed meats such as uh, bacon, ham, hot dogs and sausages. Uh, these are some of the foods which should be avoided. Plan ahead. So if you find that you are reaching for the highly processed foods because they are convenient uh, and yet uh, and you are in a hurry to get uh, to your meeting or your kid to soccer practice, try planning out snacks on the weekend for the weekdays. Uh, you can maybe set aside portions of trail mix, carrots and celery with hummus, Greek yogurts uh, with fruit with uh, and fruit with uh, with uh, natural nut butters so they are ready to grab and go. Number eight, use substitutes for highly processed snacks and foods instead of potato chips. Try maybe non-fat popcorn, uh, which is a whole grain and a good source of fiber and still gives a crunch that you're looking for. You can also replace sugar-sweetened cereal with unsweetened oatmeal and add fruit for flavor. Um, you can also make your own versions of traditionally processed foods. So consider homemade kale chips, granola and even salad dressings. Um, uh, I mean, we, we, obviously we must practice uh, what we preach as well. And we, whatever we speak about, we should be doing it ourselves as well. But this this one, uh, I can say uh, <laughs> I, I would not be doing that. The homemade kale chips. I'd, I'd much rather go for for at least a packet <laughs> of, of traditionally uh, processed foods. That, that's one thing that I maybe won't be able to swap. Um, but, but, but yeah, instead but, uh, can of... I, yes. Can I just add there? Something? Yeah, yeah. You could swap the, the processed one for... You know, lentils one or the other kind of exactly like, like the sun bites and, and other such things. Isn't exactly, it? yeah. So, so yeah, yeah, that I wouldn't mind, but I definitely wouldn't make homemade uh, kale <laughs> I'm, chips. I'm, I'm with you on kale. I'm with you on kale. <laughs> there. It's one of the vegetables that I cannot stand. <laughs> exactly. Um, instead of uh, bottled salad dressing um, that that may contain preser preservatives, your body doesn't need. Maybe we can whip up your own. So that's something uh, which, of course, we can do um, and make healthier versions of frozen meals so we can try batch cooking on the weekend or a weeknight when you have time uh, consider a homemade mac and cheese with uh, whole wheat pasta and veggies or, or turkey burger patties with sauteed yeah. vegetables um, last but not least number 11 on this list is don't be fooled by the advertising so if you see fat or sugar modified food uh, such as fat free mayo or sugar free yogurt be wary these foods may have artificial ingredients such as the artificial colors um, yellow number six or red uh, number 40 or, or other chemical additives such as the artificial sweetener um, um, uh, which is a, a, a type of potassium uh, making them more processed and potentially less healthful for you as well 
Um, so Shreef, some very interesting uh, to- uh, um, ways in which we can actually have a a healthier diet as well, isn't it? It's something which all of us um, can do, uh, at least some of these, if not mm. all, um, to, to, to have a better and uh, healthier and balanced diet, isn't it? It, it is, and my my tip of the day for me is I make my own um, honey mustard dressing. Okay, and that that is um, a good substitute for buying your you know the bottle dressing like you mentioned just now. So mm-hmm. a little bit of honey, a little bit of mustard, a little bit of olive oil mixed up together. Add a bit of salt, a little bit of salt, or even um, lemon juice, mm-hmm. and there you go. You've got your your own salad dressing for. And it, it keeps, so you can make it for the week, or I used to do it when I was um, traveling to work. So have a salad and have my my honey mustard dressing on the side as an, an add-on rather than buying um, the bottle dressing. Yeah. So, But the thing that amazes me is, you know, every year, every few years, we get new research that comes in that tells us pretty much the same thing, that you know, fast food, processed foods are bad for us and mm-hmm. that wholesome grains, you know, um, and yet we still fall foul of it and I'm victim of it too. Yeah. And, you know, we all do. So, for example, you mentioned brown rice. How many of us actually have brown rice? Mm-hmm. Uh, will we substitute our basmati or white rice for brown rice? Mm-hmm. Um, very few of us have. And same thing with pasta, same thing with salad. You know, when you look at the diet that we have as a as a culture culturally is very heavy on oil and um and not so much processed meat but heavy on oil and other things that are harmful to us and not so much wholesome vegetables or grains or any of the other bits that you've mentioned earlier yeah yeah no no most certainly and and that's why in fact the holy quran it doesn't just teach us about eating halal foods but it actually also teaches us of eating tayyab foods isn't it which would translate to english uh, mm. as pure wholesome uh, and acquired by legal and ethical means so these are uh, uh, these are other things as well like you mentioned oil for instance um mm. and it, it obviously it depends from culture to culture D- different cultures or different nations um have uh, different diets some may uh, ha- eat a, a lot of uh, one specific thing. Others may have uh, something else which uh, which they consume mm. a lot of. Um, which and and anything which you consume too much of is harmful. I mean, everything Islam teaches us that everything needs to be done in moderation. Even if we go to prayer, let's say, uh, which mm. is our fundamental duty as Muslims, um, we are not told to just seclude ourselves and go into the forests and into the jungles and just pray all the time. Uh, rather, mm. Allah the Almighty. He teaches us that there are five set appointed times in which you, uh, I want you to pray. Of course, there are other uh, ways in which you can attain nearness to God Almighty. There's serving mankind. There's giving to charity. There's all this all sorts of things. Um, but it's not limited that your whole day needs to be consistent uh, consisting of these things. But rather, uh, you should go about your day with the remembrance of Allah the Almighty and other such things as well. You need to go out and work. You need to go out and study. You need to do so many other things as well. You need to go out and be healthy uh, active sport, sports and other such things as well so obviously a balanced life a balanced diet is what's required over here mm-hmm. um, with, with that I mean we are cutting short on time as well we're going to be going straight to the the last segment um, the, the audio clip that we heard earlier as well um, was related to, to both of these topics and uh, of course we have the, the other audio clip with the, the interview with uh, uh, Professor Alaka Basu which will 
you'll be listening to in just a short while. But this topic is in regards to overpopulation. Are there too many of us? So towards the end of 2022, the human population on Earth is expected to reach 8 billion. And uh, the question of overpopulation remains as loud as ever. It is seemingly uh, it is a seemingly ancient concern, first being recorded three and a half thousand years in an ancient poem um, that is yet to be addressed. And uh, uh, and the question over here is: Are there truly too many of us, or is this the wrong question? So, how long has the question of overpopulation? Um, actually been around uh, Usman yeah, the question um, so in ni- in 1798 Thomas Malthaus warned of an uh, impending ecological trap driven by overpopulation the world was uh, altered most forcibly to the population problem in the 1960s by the US bi- biologist Paul Ehrlich in his uh, million selling book The Population Bomb there was reason to be scared. Back then, women were having five or six children, and most of those uh, children were growing up and uh, having their own children. As a, as a result, the human population was doubling every generation. Doubling food production seemed impossible. The battle to feed humanity is over, Eric wrote. Sometimes, sometime between 1970 and in 1985, the world will undergo vast famine, famines hundreds of millions of people are going to starve to death mm. so it's since uh, 1798 uh, mentioned by Thomas Malthus but I believe it's the question has been there it's like uh, since, since, since before that yeah exactly exactly um, as we 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 listened to uh, an audio clip of Faith Matters in which the the question of whether it's overpopulation or overconsumption was uh, was addressed, and world leaders uh, uh, in in terms of in monetary terms uh, that was also addressed as well, uh, poverty and other such things. Um, so I mean, all of these things are, are linked. But now we're going to be going to the, uh, uh, the discussion that we had with Professor Alaka Basu. Um, we listened to just uh, a portion of the first uh, question earlier, which we, we played by mistake. Uh, apologies for that. Um, but she's a senior fellow at the Uni- United Nations Foundation in Washington, D.C., and a, a widely published author in the fields of reproductive health, family planning, gender and development, and the politi- uh, politics of population policy. Um, like I mentioned earlier as well, she's also previously served as the director of the South Asia Program at Cornell University and taught at the Harvard School of Public Health and Georgetown University as well. Is overpopulation something we need to be worried about? All right. So the word overpopulation actually doesn't mean much without a context. It's used, uh, the term is used a lot, especially by different political groups. But we need to ask uh, what we mean by that. Uh, by, in strictly, very literally, of course, we mean too many people. But then the questions are, there are at least two questions we need to ask. One is too too many people where? Do we mean too many people in the world as a whole? Do we mean too many people in individual countries or regions? And maybe we sometimes even mean too many people at the micro level within households. Families having too many people per household. So that's the first thing. And the second question, uh, and the second uh, question we need to ask is too many people from what perspective, for what reason, from what point of view? And one can think of again at least three ways of thinking about it. Are there too many people 
in terms of environmental impact and that's the big one these days that everyone talks about all the time are there too many people otherwise in the in the context of the prospects for economic development and growth and finally one can say are there too many people if we want a decent quality of life for for everyone and so the answers will vary very much depending on that these two kinds of contexts and just for example to think about the environment uh, one can uh, the natural tendency is to say that uh, the fewer the people we have the smaller the impact on the environment that's very true only in a very accounting sense because uh, really it depends very much on how much these people are consuming and if you look at consumption in fact we find that the countries with the smaller population size the developed countries with smaller population size consume uh, 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 resources that have a negative impact on the environment uh, at a much much higher level than people in the poor countries which might have a much larger population so that's the first thing the consumption has to be taken into account we need to, we cannot talk only about numbers of people it's a combination of how many people and uh, how much they consume and how much the impact they have on the environment and uh, it's uh, not a straightforward relationship but on the whole the places with more people tend to have a smaller per capita impact on the environment then if you're thinking about economic growth are there too are there too many people and is that holding back economic growth again it's not really the numbers of the people that we should be talking about in that context we should be talking about the distribution of the people in particular the age distribution who these too many people these national populations consist of uh, for example in the richest countries right now we have uh too few people in the sense of we don't have enough people of working age and we have too many old people so to that extent they have a population problem which is the opposite they have too few people too few people by which i mean too few working age people in many of the poor countries you in fact might have uh, uh too many people of working age especially if you can't provide them with the jobs but if you're lucky and you have the right policies you might in fact have what is called a demographic dividend that you have a, a large population that is capable of working and therefore that should be a push for economic growth and then in terms of quality of life again it depends on what you mean by quality of life so you are overpopulated if you want everyone to have the american style of life if you want everyone in the whole world to have an american quality of life you really need just about 2 billion people in the world and not the current 9 billion but if you're willing to have a population that has a slightly lower quality of life in terms of things like meat consumption and energy use the world can support many more maybe 7 or 8 billion people so that word overpopulation really has to be contextualized that makes sense um, and it's interesting to see why you bring in consumption and and uh, people into it rather than just saying and you know resources and other things instead of just looking at which country has more people because it's not just that it's also about you know what you as mentioned resources consumption as well um so what are some of the effects that government uh, population control policies can have um on countries yeah so the first thing is of course i don't think a more any country needs a population control policy uh, for uh, several reasons one is from the experience of china and other parts of the world that have tried to have a population control policy we know that that's a policy one it's uh, leads to huge human rights abuses it interferes in people's right to decide for themselves 
how they want to conduct their private lives. Uh, but secondly, it also is ineffective in the sense that people will find ways around what uh, getting around it. But more importantly, if you have a population policy now, to it's unnecessary because world growth rates, population growth rates, and particular birth rates are coming down all over the world, and you can't hurry them up beyond a point because of what is called population momentum. We already have a large number of prospective parents. So even if each parent ends up having only two children, which is what a population control policy tries to do, we are still going to have a large number of people being born in the coming years. So it will take some time for the population numbers to stabilize. Uh, we are not going to be have much of an effect on the total population by enforcing uh, rules about people's behavior, reproductive behavior. So for all these reasons, I don't think... So what we need to do is not a population control policy, but a population welfare policy that targets, that allows people that, to have the number of children they would want. And as I said, the majority of people now want much fewer children than the, in the past. So, for example, giving them good contraceptive services so that they can actually achieve uh, the low fertility that most of them want. One of the reasons the birth rate is high is because there's a large what we call unmet need for family planning. Happy couples and women who want contraceptive methods don't have access to good methods. And therefore, they end up having more children than they might want. And secondly, a population welfare policy would focus on when people do want more children than two or three, why do they want them more children? So, for example, we know that high child, infant and child mortality makes people uh, want more children to make sure they uh, have at least some alive in adulthood. We know that the absence of social security means people would need to depend on their children for old age security or for support uh, when they can no longer work. We know, for example, that gender equality, gender equality, inequality leads usually to high fertility, that women, if they're not educated, if they can't find a means of independent uh, financial independence, uh, if they are too much under the control of patriarchal norms, then high fertility tends to be an outcome. So if we address some of these determinants of high fertility, uh, we will uh, go faster towards the lower population growth rate. But before, even aside from that, the most important is that we, the women are often having more children than they want because they don't have access to the contraceptive and reproductive services. Yeah, so would you say that, uh, so, so from your answer, it sounds like you believe that um, it should be voluntary decisions that everyone has in terms of uh, if you want a smaller family or larger family. Um, and so you, but you also said that you know countries shouldn't have a need for um, having uh, population control policies. So would you say that um, what what do you think? You know, countries that you mentioned, which have um, less, um, have a decreasing population, a natural decrease in population. Um, would you, would you suggest that policies are introduced to increase uh, population so there's a working population? Or would you say, or would you, you know, think that it's better for there to be a migration where younger workers move to such countries um, so that there are younger um, workers if there's a need for um, younger workers? Yeah. yeah. In an ideal world, I would go for the second. I would redistribute the population so that the extra workers in the poorer countries can in fact become the pool of needed workers 
in the low fertility countries. But we don't live in an ideal world, so that's not going to happen beyond a point. And so the, these countries do need to think about what they want to do. Uh, what they want to do, again, is uh, uh, in the opposite direction now, forcing people, uh, encouraging people to have more children, sometimes even obliging them to have more children by making it more difficult for them to get access to, say, contraception or abortion so that they're forced to have more children. Uh, I don't think these are good strategies. These are the, the family size is something uh, women need to decide for themselves or couples need to decide for themselves. It should be voluntary, but it can be voluntary as well as informed. They need to know what the, uh, what the implications are in both cases of where people have many children and where they have few children. It has to be, the decision has to be their own, yeah. but it can still be an informed decision. It shouldn't be a decision made out of not thinking about it at all. So I think that's important. But countries like Japan and Korea, which are seriously concerned about the fact that the birth rate is very low and the, the, they have aging populations, so they need workers to contribute to the well-being of these non-workers, the old people, they, of course, need to think about how they go about it, what they do about it. But I don't think imposing uh, births on women is a good idea. Again, they might address some of the reasons that why are people in Japan and Korea having so, uh, so few births. Some of it is due to, in fact, gender inequality of another kind, that there's a great yes. incompatibility mm -hmm. between... Yeah, women are not able to combine their productive and their reproductive roles. And so if they want to work they, and they don't have the support services to look after their children, then they don't have children. Or similarly, if they don't feel comfortable in the way domestic work is uh, divided, they may even decide not to get married. This is very commonly happening in many parts of East Asia. We have what's called a retreat from marriage. Women would rather not get married than get married and have this double burden of housework and work, uh, labor force participation and looking after children. So they end up not getting married or they end up, even if they get married, they end up not yeah. having uh, births. So you can address yeah. the same kinds of gender inequality in these countries. You can address the reasons why people are not having the children that you want them to have at the same time. Uh, you cannot force them in these uh, underhand ways by denying them contraception or giving uh, to ha have more children. And uh, it has to be voluntary. But secondly, in an ideal world, as I said, you should be uh, importing workers from other parts of the world where there's an excess. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you very much for joining us here on The Voices Islam today. I hope the listeners have benefited from your views on this topic. Um, you know, many of our listeners, some of our listeners may not share the, all the same views as you, but it was definitely really interesting to hear, you know, your side of what you heard. And um, let's hope that there, you know, we at least move towards an ideal world where um, yes. government doesn't have to get yes. involved with everything and at least people can decide that within themselves um, you know, what they think is the right thing to do. Um, but yeah, thank you. Thank you again very much for joining us here. On thank you thank for you. asking me. This is a very hot topic, so I hope you keep talking about it. All right. Thank you very much. Okay, thank bye. You. That was our discussion with uh, Professor Alaka Basu, uh, who is a senior fellow at the United Nations Foundation in Washington, D.C. Um, and like we mentioned earlier as well, a widely published author in the fields of reproductive health, family planning, gender and development and the po politics of population policy. Um, sharing some very interesting uh, things uh, with us. And uh, um, I mean, we, we can learn a lot from that discussion as well, isn't it, Sharif? 
Indeed, indeed. It's, it's quite an interesting um, insight into what I personally thought was you know, you link overpopulation with overconsumption, mm-hmm. but the link that the professor has drawn is quite insightful and quite um, um, eye-opening in a way, because you would think that with an overpopulation and the crisis that we're having, uh, we're going to reach an overconsumption, but it's not necessarily the case. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, most yeah. certainly, most certainly. And how, uh, before, uh, I mean, we are coming towards the end now, how does this link uh, into climate change and other contemporary issues that we're seeing um, uh, in today's day and age as well? Well, climate change drives um, currently developed countries back into poverty and drives their birth rates back up. So the connection between societies growing wealthier and people desiring smaller families is pretty straightforward. In richer societies, people do not need their kids to do labor and support the family. And the following five stages will occur um, in the coming years. First, birth rates are high, but so are death rates, and the population is low but stable. In the second stage, technology helps more kids survive to adulthood. So birth rates remain high and the population grows rapidly for one to, or two generations. In the third stage, birth rate starts um, to decline, driven by increased certainty about children's survivals, the dynamics of rich economies. And in the fourth stage, birth rates fall and the population stabilizes. It's a little unclear where we'll go from there if the fifth stage population might shrink due to below um, replacement reproduction and stabilizing growth. Some governments like China, where we've seen the one-child policy, and some states like India have implemented strict policies towards controlling the population. Other countries like Japan and South Korea see record low births and encouraging their population to have more children as such the disparity between countries and our population is quite jarring and I think with more population we will see more increase in climate change, more usage and and more demands mm, mm, Most certainly Most certainly um, and this does bring us to an end for today's show, one uh, verse of the Holy Quran that I would like to uh, mention over here is that um, Allah the Almighty states that and do not kill your children for fear of poverty we provide for them and for you indeed their killing is ever a great sin so I mean from this we can see that Allah the Almighty he doesn't he doesn't uh, want any hardship for us and he doesn't uh, he always says that we should put our reliance uh, upon him we should put place our trust in him and with that he of course will help us as well um, and this is something that we always need to keep in mind. Um, and with that, we have now come to an end for today's show. Thank you to everyone who was involved. Have a pleasant day. And here's the nine o'clock news.